It is so good to be together. So great to see you all. Do this while you're getting settled there. Pull out your Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, you can slip up your hand and there are ushers who will come down the aisles. We'd love for you to have a Bible there open to Romans 4. While you're turning back to Romans 4, we're headed back in our study in Romans. I want to invite you, if you're newer to our church, you're sort of a guest or you've been visiting we're having a lunch today after the second service, so it'll start at about 12.30, 12.45 right here down the hall. It's called Introducing River West. This is a lunch where you, um, you can learn about the story of our church, meet our leadership, hear about our vision, kind of we'll talk a little bit about our core values and where we're headed. And if you've never come to Introducing River West, it's a really important meeting. We'd love for you to join us for that right after the second service, 12.45, come back for that. Um, the second thing I'm going to do is I'm going to start the sermon different today. I'm really excited about this. I've invited um, a, a precious member of our church family named Serge Ponzu to come, and he's going to read our text in Romans. So, Serge, if you want to come on up, bring him up with a round of applause. This is a wonderful friend and brother in Christ. If you, um, if you haven't met Serge, don't worry, you will. He is like, this is a Christian joy incarnate right here. And so uh, relational, I, I love you so much and so thankful. I'm asking Serge to read the text, but this morning he's going to read Romans 4, 1 through 12 in his native tongue of Lingala. And I think that's going to be really sweet. And here's why. So what, what, what's been happening in our church, we've been, I was thinking several months ago about how many different languages are spoken in our church and how precious that is. And it got me thinking about this moment in the book of Revelation. Remember, you, you might remember this moment. This is how the story ends, where John sees this multitude of worshipers, like a multitude that he cannot count from every nation, every tribe, and every language, worshiping Jesus. And we thought, how, what a beautiful picture of the body of Christ, amen? And then I thought, it'd be sweet to hear uh, gospel read in some of these different languages. And so Serge is going to read from Romans 4. And you can follow along on the screens in English. He'll be reading in Lingala. And so, Serge, would you bless us with the reading of the word? Sure, thank you. All right. Um, when I say mbote, you say mbote, I'll tell you what does that mean. Mbote. All right. So that's the first word you hear when you landed in uh, the international airport of Kinshasa in the DRC. People say hi to you. Say mbote. 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 Good. All right. So let's read by God's grace. Bongo toloba nini pona koko nabiso Abraham. Bolamu nini ye azwaka. Soki akomaki moto yabosembo na miso na nzambe pona misala na ye. Mbele akokaki komi kumisa. Kasi akokaki komi kumisa te na miso ya nzambe. Pamba te ekomama boye. Abraham andimelaki nzambe yangowana nzambe akomaki. Kamatakiye lokola moto yabosembo. Moto oyo asalaka bafutaka nde mosala na ye. Lifuta yango ezali likabo ya ofelete. 
Nzokande Nzambe atalaka misala ya Abraham te. Akamata kiye lokola moto ya bosembo poye andimaki te Nzambe akomisaka bato ya masumu bosembo. Sendenge wana nzembo ya David ezali kolakisa esengo ya moto oyo Nzambe akamati lokola moto ya bosembo pe atali misala na yete ekomama boye esengo na moto oyo nkolo alimbisi pe alongoli masumu na bango esengo na moto oyo nkolo akamati lokola moto ya masumu te Esengo yango ezali bobele pona bato oyo bakata nzoto te ezali pe pona ba oyo bakata manzoto te pamba te nauti koloba boye nzambe akamataki Abraham lokola moto ya bosembo pona bondimi na ye Makambo yango elekaki tango nini libosote bakata Abraham nzoto tosima ezalaki liboso kasi simate nasima Abraham ami katisa kinzoto nzambe apesaki ye lembo yango elakisaki te asi akomaki bosembo pona ndenge andimelaki nzambe Yango bakata kiye nanu nzoto te. Yango wana Abraham akoma koko ya batonyoso oyo bandimeli nzambe ata bakatama nzoto te. Pamba te nzambe akamati bango lokola bato ya bosembo. Azali peli susu koko ya bayuda kasi ezalite po bango bakatama nzoto azali koko ya bayuda oyo balandaka nzela ya bondimi ndenge koko na biso abraham azalaki kolanda libosote bakataye nzoto awesome amen can we say thank you to sir Thank you, brother. Lovely man. So good. Thank you. We lost English there, but you got the idea, right? So better that than four-point font where you can't read it anyway, right? And uh, I'm going to talk. I asked Serge for permission to tell a little bit more of his story afterwards. I ask for permission because I don't want to take him shopping at Nordstrom's later, so I always ask for permission. I always ask my daughters for permission before I talk about them, so I ask for Serge's permission as well. Pull out those Bibles, would you open to Romans 4? Here's what's happening this morning. I want to talk to you this morning about the ingredient of Christian faith, or what we might call saving faith, that sets it apart from other kinds of faith. That's what my message is about this morning. There's this one ingredient it's sort of like a critical ingredient to saving faith. And it's what I'm going to call this morning a trust transfer. 
a trust transfer, okay? And here's what I mean by that. Saving faith always involves a transfer. A moment when you remove your trust from the things you've been depending on in order to place them on God as Savior. And you you make this transfer. And that moment is the critical moment. And probably one of the greatest ways to illustrate it is that moment when as you're sitting down in a chair, you know this moment, there's a moment when you're about to sit in a chair where all of your trust gets transferred, right? All your trust gets transferred, and it has to. In order to trust fully in that chair, you have to stop trusting in your legs to hold your body up, and you go all the way in, and you sit down in that chair. That's what we're talking about this morning. And it's a really important message because if you think about it, it's this reminder, everyone in our world is putting their trust in something. Isn't that true? I want you to think about this. Everyone trusts in something. But the key to Christian faith is when you learn to transfer that trust. But even in a world that's increasingly becoming less and less religious, We cannot help as human beings to be people of faith. We're going to trust in something. We live in a society where we're always talking about faith. We're always referring to faith. We're always describing faith, musing about faith, even singing about faith, right? Even in non-religious circumstances, faith will come up all the time in our poetry, in our politics, in our music, Consider the following lyric to a song which you could sing with me if you wanted. Finish this sentence for me. And then I saw her face. Now I'm a believer, right? Not a trace of doubt in my mind. I'm in love. Ooh. I'm a believer. I couldn't leave her if I tried. Amen, right? Who wrote that? Not Shrek. Don't tell me Shrek, all right? Who wrote that song? The Monkees, right? Yes. George Michael wrote a song about faith, but I don't think we should sing those lyrics in church. That one's a little less appropriate, right? And you could go online and you could, you could type in faith and you would f- find all kinds of definitions of faith. Carl Sagan, the famous atheist, once said, faith is believing something without any evidence. I'm not sure what I think about that, but that's what he thought about faith, Right? Or here's a quote I found this week. This one's funny and a little bit cynical. Faith is like Wi-Fi. It's invisible, but it definitely has the power to connect you to ideas that may or may not be true. That's a good thought, right? (laughs) Wi-Fi, okay? So we're always talking about faith. We're always thinking about faith. But have we ever stopped to slow down and ask the question, what about saving faith? I mean, what is it? What is the key to saving faith? And how could I know if I've experienced it? I mean, that might be the kind of question you'd want to be asking. Have I experienced saving faith? All 25 verses of Romans 4 are devoted to an exposition of saving faith. Will you turn there with me? All 25 verses of this chapter are about faith. And specifically, as we heard as Serge read, Abraham is Paul's model of faith. He becomes like the prototype of Christian faith. 
One commentator described Romans 4 as Paul's dissection of faith. It's like in biology class in high school when you get the, when you get the frog and you dissect it and you open it up and you look at all the different pieces and parts. I, I, I went to a, maybe a, a, a more um, like, we had a little more money at my school, so we got fetal pigs. We dissected fetal pigs at my school and we opened it up and this is Paul. He's going to say, let me, let me lay out faith and show you all of the different pieces, all the different different ingredients. And in order to do this this morning, Paul's going to answer three questions. I want to put these on the screen so you can see them. He's going to answer three questions in Romans 4, and the questions are this. They're all about Abraham's salvation, or the word is justification. Question number one Paul's going to answer is, how was Abraham justified? Question number two is, when was Abraham justified? Now, you might not realize how important that question is. You're, you probably would never ask that question, but for Paul, that question's really important. When was he justified? And then question number three is, what were the essential ingredients of the faith that justified Abraham? And this morning, we're only going to tackle those first two. We're going to save question number three for next week. And we're going to do it by walking through the passage verse by verse. This is something we often do. So now, let's start working through Romans 4. Here's what Paul says. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul's been building his case that justification is by faith in Christ. And you remember we talked a lot about that word justification. It's basically the word righteousness, Paul's been saying that you you become declared righteous by God, not by works, but by faith. Because if it was by works, you could boast about it. So he's been building this case. He's been saying justification is by faith in Christ alone. And that kind of faith excludes boasting. And now what he does in Romans 4 is he calls two witnesses to support his case. Abraham here, and then in just a couple verses, he's going to call David to, to testify on his behalf. And this is like a masterstroke in argumentation. This is Paul's brilliance. Because remember, Paul is in sort of a debate with some of the Jewish Christians in Rome who are wanting to boast in their achievement, boast in their ethnicity. And Paul says, you can't boast in that, and I can prove it, and I can call to the stand two of the greatest, most prominent figures in Israel's history, Abraham and David. Abraham was arguably the most revered figure in the history of the people of Israel. He was what they called Father Abraham. He was their father in the faith. And David was arguably their most important king, the king that they revered, the king that they looked back in their history and remembered. It was under King David that as a nation we thrived and we grew and we were blessed. And now Paul says, I've got Abraham and David on my team, all right? Who you got on your team, huh? (laughs) Because I've got Abraham and David 
on my team. It reminds me of that commercial. Remember that commercial where the two kids are picking sides for their basketball team? These two precious kids and the precious little girl in pigtails. She's looking and she goes, I choose Charles Barkley, right? And the other kid's like, oh my gosh, whatever. This is David. This is Paul. He's like, I've got David, I've got Abraham, and I've got David on my team. Who do you have on your team? If Abraham was somehow justified by his works, then by all means, there's a precedent for boasting. You could boast in your religious accomplishments. You could boast in your ethnicity. But Paul's going to say, even Abraham was not justified by his works. From the very beginning, Abraham was justified by his faith. And that's why in verse 3, look at it, that's why Paul puts that in quotes. Do you see those quotes? That's because Paul's quoting from an actual verse. I'll put this up. He's quoting from Genesis 15, verse 6. And for Paul, we can leave that up, Leslie, for just a minute. For Paul, that verse is so critical. The context of the verse, which I'm going to get to in a minute, but the exact wording of that phrase matters to Paul. And so what I want to do is I'm going to put up a slide here. I'm going to take that sentence, and I'm going to break it into the two halves. So the first half of this sentence, Abraham believed God. Do we have that, Leslie? Put up that next slide. I want to just show you that the two halves of this sentence are critical, and we need to look at them one at a time. Abraham believed God. I want you to pay attention to that phrase, because the wording of that phrase is what matters. Notice, Paul does not say, Abraham believed there is a God. And that was why he was justified. And Paul doesn't say, Abraham believed some things about God. And that's why he was saved. He's not saying that believing some kind of just some vague things about God, squishy things about God, general truths about God. He's saying, that's not what I'm talking about here. Lots of people believe things about God, all kinds of things. And they're sort of vague. And and when you really listen, you begin to realize a lot of the things that people believe about God are things that they actually created. They sort of started with their core values and the things that they care about and their priorities. And then they build sort of a picture of a deity of God. And then they believe in that God. And you could have all kinds of faith in a God that you have created. But that's not the kind of faith that Paul's talking about. And that kind of faith can never save you from your sins. Paul's talking about a very specific faith that happened to Abraham. A moment when his heart responded to something specific. And he believed God, the God of the universe. His heart responded in complete trust to something that God had promised him. In a moment, his faith was redirected away from the things that he had been trusting in, and he placed his hope fully in the God of the universe. 
And that's why the context is so important. So let's go there now. If you want to keep your finger in Romans 4, do that. And turn. If you want to turn back to Genesis 15, I'm also going to put the lyric or the word, I'll put the word up on the screen here. Genesis 15, 1 through 6 is where Paul gets this quote. And I want you to see this in context. This is one of the most beautiful stories in the Old Testament. People have written songs about this moment. It's absolutely precious. This, the context of this moment is God coming to Abraham to remind Abraham that he had promised him, you're going to become the father of a mighty nation, a multitude of people. But Abraham and Sarah were barren. They could not have babies. And by, and by the time we get to Genesis 15, they're probably somewhere in their mid-70s. So that promise is not looking very likely for them, right? And here's what happened. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Can you believe it? That guy, Eliezer. Like, who's Eliezer of Damascus? I don't know, but it's a bummer. That's the only reason his name got in the Bible. It's like, of all people, Eliezer of Damascus is going to end up being my heir. And Abram said, behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Of course, he was promising the birth of Isaac, which would happen later. And look at this. He brought Abram outside and he said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able. I love that moment. Have you ever walked outside and looked up, you know, when you're out like in the country Imagine trying to number the stars. Abram's like, number the stars, I dare you. (laughs) Try it. Number the stars if you're able. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. I promise you. And now, Romans 4.3, Genesis 15.6, look at this. And he believed Yahweh. And he counted it to him as righteousness. You see that word Lord, see how it's capitalized? You know what that means? That's not just a vague name for God. That's not just the word God. It's not just a general title that we use. That little capitalized L-O-R-D, that is the personal name of the creator God of the universe. Some people think the translation is Yahweh. This is Abraham responding to the personal God of the universe who's making him promises that defy all of the odds of his life. And in that moment, something happened in Abraham's heart where he transferred his trust away from everything that he was depending on, all the physical circumstances of his life. He could have stayed there and trusted in those. God, do you know that Sarah, my wife, is in her late 70s and you're telling me my son will become the source of a multitude of nations? And God said, I promise you. And Abraham could have stayed there trusting physical circumstances, but something happened in that moment and his heart, 
His trust was transferred, and he believed God. And that made all the difference. Friends, can I tell you something? You know, it's one of the most significant things that could ever happen to you, and I'm praying that it happens this morning for some of us. The most important thing that could happen to you is if you were to come to the realization about the things that you're actually depending on in your life. And I mean really depending on them. Even if you think you're religious, and lots of people are religious, but sometimes even when you're religious, you can have a moment, it's almost like an aha moment, like a paradigm shift, where you realize, wait a minute, I'm actually, tr- like I'm, if you were to say, what are you really building your life on? I'm really building my life on a bunch of things over here. And now I've got the God of the universe asking me to transfer my trust. Like sitting down in a chair. But if you were to do that, it would make all the difference. All the difference. Abraham believed God. Okay, but now look at the second piece, because this is incredible. So he believed God. Here's the second piece of the sentence. It was counted to him as righteousness. This phrase introduces us to an extremely important word for this entire chapter. It shows up 11 times. In the ESV, it's the word counted. If you have NIV, it might be the word credited. This is the Greek word logizomai, say that. Logizomai, say it again, logizomai. You never need to know that again. It's an amazing Greek word. I just love saying it. If I ever got a tattoo, that's why, logizomai, right? Because it would make great conversation. Huh, what's that? Logizomai. Oh, let me talk to you about it. It's an amazing word, actually, okay? This is an accounting word, logizomai, and here's what it means. It comes from the world of banking or the world of accounting, and it means to credit something or reckon something. When used in a financial or a commercial context, it signifies to put something to someone's account. To credit something or confer a status that was not there before. That's what this word means. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is, an, this is an important concept. Probably the best illustration for this counting or crediting is we don't do this that much more in our culture, but lease with an option to buy. You know this? Sometimes it used to be you could, like, you could like rent a house with a lease with an option to buy, or more likely it'd be like a car where initially you're just making rental payments, but if you got to the end of your contract, you could make the decision, I actually want to buy this, and what they would do at that moment is they would take all of those rent payments, and they would reckon them, they would logizomai those payments as payments on the loan, and now you become an owner. They count them as something different than they were before. Or let's say I went to my bank tomorrow morning, and I walked into my bank, and I said, I would like you to credit all of my money to my daughter Lauren's account, all right? Just reckon all of my money. The very first thing that the banker would say is, what money? Like, what money specifically are you talking about? (laughs) 
And then I would realize I've already reckoned all of my money to her account because I paid for her tuition and now we're paying for a wedding. But anyway, that's a technicality, okay? But assuming that I had money, all of those riches would be counted to her. She would be counted rich on account of my riches. And that's what's happening in this verse. And so you say, well, how does that apply to righteousness, pastor? What does that have to do with salvation? So now I ask you, I need you to think deeply about this. What does the Bible mean when it says that Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness? What's going on there? Because friends, this is the key to the Christian. This is like the key to salvation. This is where it all This is like the razor's edge of the gospel. Is Paul saying that faith resulted in actual righteousness for Abraham or for you? You have faith and then it results in righteousness. The problem with that is he wouldn't go out of his way to use this accounting word, logizomai, which he uses over and over. No, he's saying you believe and that belief gets credited, it gets, it gets redistributed into a different column. The column is righteousness. And you say, well, how does that happen? Or does Paul mean that Abraham's faith was in itself a form of righteousness? Is faith equivalent to living a righteous life? The problem with that is we know that's not true because in just two verses, Paul's going to say, God actually justifies the ungodly. At the moment that Abraham was declared righteous or counted righteous, he was still ungodly. So this is where it's scandalous. Abraham was actually ungodly. And all he did was believe the promise of God. And God took that faith and he reckoned it to Abraham's account as righteousness. Did you know that this concept is what launched the Protestant Reformation? Martin Luther stumbled over righteousness over and over, and then he had a moment where he was reading this chapter, and he realized, wait a minute, there is this gift that God gives, this righteousness that's outside of me. He called it alien righteousness, that God somehow in his grace transfers to my account. He credits it to me. And now he sees me in that righteousness. And Martin Luther said, when I discovered that, it was like the doors of heaven were open for me. I was born again. Light flooded into my life. And what Paul does next, verses four and five, so now let's read on, is he now unpacks how this works. So this is sort of where Paul and his logic, his brilliance. Look at verse four. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So he's still using this word logizomai. And all he does in verse four, just look at that verse, all he does is he makes the very obvious observation that pay from an, that, pay that an employee receives is not counted as grace. It's, it's, a, it's a debt. You don't open a paycheck from your employer 
and go, how surprising, what an incredible grace, what a gift of generosity, my employer, out of nowhere, they just sent me money, right? No one does that. You say, they actually owe me this. They owe me this and probably a little bit more. But anyway, this is this, they're in my debt because I work for them. When you work for someone, you put them in your debt. And Paul says, so that's what happens when you work, it's counted to you as debt. But that's not what we're talking about here. So verse five, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And this is where we come to the heart of the trust transfer. I'm just going to leave that up. I want you to see this. This is the transfer. This is the moment. There's two steps in that verse. Did you notice? The first step is right there in that first phrase. The first thing you have to do is you have to put an end to one kind of trust. You have to stop trusting in your own work. And then you transfer your trust. You stop trusting and working. And you transfer your trust. And you place it completely on God and Christ. And when that happens, that's like the moment when the heavens open and your heart is open and all of the beauty of eternal life can flood in. It's the greatest moment. It's the, power. It's the moment I most long for everyone in this room. I remember this. I've, I've told this story before, but it's such a great moment. This trust transfer. Because remember, I, I want you to imagine, I want you to think, where am I right now? What am I actually building my life on? What am I trusting in? And I remember this moment where, when Lauren was a little girl, and I'm telling stories about Lauren because she's getting married next month, and I'm totally freaking out, all right? You need to pray for me. I'm like, it finally, I, people are like, how are you doing? And for the longest time, I was like, I'm fine. Are you kidding? I'm fine. I'm fine. And then a tear would come, right? <laughs> And then I finally got through Easter and I slowed down. I realized, I'm not fine. My daughter is getting married next month. This is amazing. So I'm remembering all these moments in her childhood. And I remember teaching Lauren how to swim. And there she was, three years old. She was standing on the edge of a swimming pool, standing on the concrete, safe and secure. And she was trusting in the cement. And I was in the pool. And I would look up at her and I would say, Lauren, she was so cute. Now she's getting married, and I don't know what I think about it. But I was like, Lauren, do you trust me? And she would say, I do, yes. And I would say, jump in the pool. And she'd go, no, no. <laughs> Lauren, do you trust me? I do, I do. Jump in. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> because what was she really trusting in in that moment? Concrete. And there's father in the water saying, take a leap, take a leap of faith and transfer your trust. How about you? So can I ask you to think about this morning? Because it is really critical. Where is your faith right now? What are you leaning on? What are you actually depending on? to make sense of your world, your life. Tim Keller has this incredible um, illustration that he uses where he says, 
You know, imagine if you, if you got up in front of a crowd this size, for example, and whether they were religious or not religious, and you threw out the following question, just assuming that there is a heaven, why do you think you deserve to go there? That's, that would be like a, a question you could ask almost anywhere. Just assuming there's eternal life, assuming there's heaven, why do you think that you will get to go there? And Keller says, most often, you're going to get three responses to that. These are the three most common, and I think he's right. I'm going to put these up so you can see these. Here's like the, probably the most typical three responses. Response one is, because I've tried my best to be a good Christian. Or I've tried, I'm, a, I'm a pretty good person. A, a lot of people would say that. Why do you think you deserve eternal life with God? Because I'm, really, I'm a pretty good person. Like, you know, God probably grades on a curve, and I'm pretty good, so, right? Answer number two is this, because I believe in God, and I try to do his will. And answer number three, most often, do we have those ones, those next three, Leslie? Because I believe in God with all my heart. That's a different slide, but this is amazing. There it is. Hey, there we go. Woo, we're going to make it through, all right? People, pray for me. So there they are. I believe, I've tried my best to be a really good Christian. I believe in God, and I try to do his will, because I believe in God with all my heart. Now, look, actually, you know what I want to point out? All three of those are problematic. All three of them. The first one is straight up justification by works. This is like, I've, I've done pretty good. I've worked. Therefore, God will reward me. The second one seems better, but it's basically faith plus some works. I believe, but I also have tried really hard to do God's will. And here's the problem with the third one. The third one is, is basically faith as a work. Like, my faith is so earnest. My faith is so strong that it ends up being a work that God rewards. And all three of those are wrong. But do you see how subtle it is? How you could, you could come to the realization, I've actually been trusting myself. You know, someone asked Billy Graham this question on his deathbed. We can take that down. Thanks, Leslie. Somebody said to Billy Graham, how do you know that you will, you'll, you'll go to heaven with Christ? And it's amazing. I mean, if anyone could have like boasted in his works, right? Billy Graham, right? You know what he said? He said, here's, here's how I know. Because Jesus Christ died on a cross for my sins. And he rose again on the third day. And God has been gracious to me in Christ. And even by God's grace, I believe that. Amen? Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? What if today was the day you transferred your trust? God, I'm realizing I'm over here. I'm trusting in the concrete of all the things in my life that I care about. I'm justifying my existence. Maybe it's through my achievements. Maybe it's through my performance. I'm trying to make all these people in my life happy. And God is saying, none of that matters. Reorient your life and put your hope in me and in my son, Jesus Christ. Well, listen, I wish I had more time, but we're going to run out of time, so let's read out this passage. This is what Paul does next, verses 6 through 8. He now calls David to the stand. Look at this. 
He says, just as David also speaks of the blessings of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And now this is a quote from Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person against whom the Lord will not count his sin. There's the word logizomai again, count. What David, what David contributes is David says, not only does God count righteousness to your account, when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, God doesn't count your sins, which should be counted to your account. He takes your sin and he moves it to someone else's account. It's what the Bible calls this exchange. He, he takes righteousness of Christ, the perfect righteousness of Christ, and he reckons it to you. And then he takes your sinful life and he reckons it to Christ on the cross. And that's the gospel. Amazing. But he goes on. Look at verse nine. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that Abraham was, that we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted? So remember, Paul, that circumcised and uncircumcised, don't get freaked out if you're just joining us. We've actually done a lot with that word, surprisingly. <laughs> we had a whole sermon on that. And Pastor Eric is an expert on the whole thing of circumcision. Ask him after the service. But anyway, so if you want to go back, listen to that sermon. But remember, here's what Paul's doing. Paul's saying in the Roman churches, there were Jewish Christians, and they, they called themselves the circumcision. And they viewed that as this ethnic marker that made them superior to others. And then they looked down on all the Gentile Christians who they, they called the uncircumcised. And it was very derogatory. And so Paul's now bringing that. So now we got to realize we're reading this, but Paul's writing to a church where there was all of this tension going on. And he's taking everything that he's saying and he's now, he's bringing it back to that context. Is this only for you Jewish Christians who you call yourselves the circumcised or is it also for the uncircumcised? Verse 10, how then was it counted him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Okay, this is the when question. When was Abraham justified? And you're thinking, who cares, right? I've never, I've ne okay, hey friends, I've been in ministry for 27 years. Do you want to know how many times anyone has ever come up and said, I've got a question for you, pastor. Was Abraham justified by faith before or after he was circumcised? And I'd be like, I can't believe you're asking me this, okay? No one's ever asked me that question. I titled this sermon, The Question No One Is Asking. But anyway, Paul cares. Paul cares about this. When did it happen? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? And here's why. Look, it was not after. It was before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So Abraham got the promise that he would be the father of many nations in Genesis 15, and he believed, and God counted it to him as righteousness. 
And then it wasn't until two chapters later, 14 years later, Genesis 17, where God said, now I want you to get circumcised as a seal of that righteousness. The purpose, here's the purpose, was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Paul, I just imagine Paul. He's thinking of the Roman church. He's looking into that room, and he's saying, all of you, don't you realize You are all the children of Abraham. You Jewish Christians, absolutely. Abraham is your father. And you have inherited unbelievable blessings from Abraham. The Old Testament law, your ethnic heritage. But the most important thing that you inherited from Abraham was the model of his faith. And then he looks across the room and he imagines those Gentile Christians. And he says, do you know what? Abraham is your father as well. So this is a moment where Paul is fighting for unity in the church. Even when there's all these things that we differ on. Differ on our views. We differ on our heritage. We differ on the language that we speak. We differ on our preferences. Paul says, none of that matters. You have the one thing in common that matters most. Father Abraham and his faith. And Paul says, this is the logic for why the church would continue to fight for unity, even amidst all of our differences. And I love this so much. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come and I'm gonna gonna remind you of a story that I told. I've told you the story before, but I'll never forget walking into the church in Egypt several years ago. When I walked into that church, I did not speak the language. I did not know the songs. I did not understand the culture I walked into this church in a little town called a suit, and I'm standing there realizing this is like everything about what I'm experiencing here feels foreign to me. But it dawned on me, I feel totally at home here. I feel so at home here. I feel more at home here than I do in some pockets in the Northwest where I'm from. And the reason is because I share in common with the Christians in this church who speak a different language, with different culture, I share in common with them all of the things that actually matter. I could have have stayed in Egypt, and and I thought about it a couple times. I could have stayed in Egypt and just joined the church and started to worship with them, and it would have been beautiful. And I love this. And Paul says, that's the whole point justification by faith. That's the one thing we share in common, and it's really beautiful. And I want to ask you this morning as we worship, have you transferred your trust? Have you done it? That moment, I'm going to reorient my life away from the things I've been building my life on. I'm going to place them completely on Jesus Christ as my Savior. Now, the third question is, what were the essential ingredients of Abraham's faith And we're going to come back and do that next Sunday. So join us then. But will you do this? Will you bow your heads with me? And then we'll worship together. Lord, we thank you so much 
for this statement that really captures in some ways the heart of everything we cherish as followers of Jesus. We believe and it's counted to us as righteousness. What a treasure, Lord. And how I pray this morning, God, that that truth would ignite our hearts. Even as we take communion in just a few moments, how I pray you would stir us up, Lord God. Help us to see the things we've been putting our hope in. Where have we been putting our trust? And make the transfer this morning, I pray. We thank you for it, Jesus. And we pray these things today in your precious name. Everyone said, amen.